This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Jonathan Watts. I'm global environment editor for The Guardian and author of the long read article, Concrete the most destructive material on earth. I'm speaking to you today from my home in Altamira, a place in the Amazon rainforest. So forgive me if you can hear some bird and insect noises in the background. I was inspired to write this article by a conversation I had with the editor of the Guardian Cities team, Chris Michaels. He was running a series about concrete and he came up to me and said, would I like to do an overarching piece about the subject? And at first I was hesitant because it would be a big commitment. And then I just realized that I'd been thinking about concrete in different forms all my working career. And this was a chance to put together everything I'd seen in different posts as a foreign correspondent. I became very excited about this possibility to include thoughts I'd been having for more than a decade, thoughts dating back to my time as a Tokyo correspondent, then a China correspondent, then a Brazil correspondent, and then kind of wrapping it all together with the environmental specialism that I have now. Three years on, I think there is a lot more discussion of whether concrete is always a good thing. It's been taken for granted for too long. But what I hope was the takeaway from my article, and indeed the whole series that The Guardian ran, was that there's a point when too much of a good thing can become a bad thing, and that we may be overusing concrete, we may be depending on it too much, we may not uh, be exploring the alternatives sufficiently. And I think that debate really has started in earnest. I, I don't think I've ever written an article in my 25 years as a journalist that generated quite as much discussion as this one. That surprised me at first, but then when you start to think about it, of course it does. You know, concrete is so pervasive. It's such a fundamental part of our lives and we take it for granted. It's the second most used material after water on Earth. And so we should reconsider this. We should reconsider everything at the moment because the stresses on our environment are really reaching a series of limits. And I think concrete and the weight of concrete and the pressure that concrete is putting on fertile land and biodiversity is a really huge problem. There is more discussion now, but there still is not enough action on that. 
Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Concrete, the most destructive material on earth. In the time it takes you to listen to this sentence, the global building industry will have poured more than 19,000 bathtubs of concrete. By the time you are halfway through this article, the volume would fill the Albert Hall and spill out into Hyde Park. In a day, it would be almost the size of China's Three Gorges Dam. In a single year, there is enough to patio over every hill Dale, Nook and Cranny in England. After water, concrete is the most widely used substance on Earth. If the cement industry were a country, it would be the third largest carbon dioxide emitter in the world with up to 2.8 billion tonnes, surpassed only by China and the US. The material is the foundation of modern development, putting roofs over the heads of billions, fortifying our defences against natural disaster and providing a structure for healthcare, education, transport, energy and industry. Concrete is how we try to tame nature. Our slabs protect us from the elements. They keep the rain from our heads, the cold from our bones and the mud from our feet. But they also entomb vast tracts of fertile soil, constipate rivers, choke habitats and, acting as a rock-hard second skin, desensitise us from what is happening outside our urban fortresses. Our blue and green world is becoming greyer by the second. By one calculation we may have already passed the point where concrete outweighs the combined carbon mass of every tree, bush and shrub on the planet. Our built environment is, in these terms, outgrowing the natural one. Unlike the natural world, however, it does not actually grow. Instead, its chief quality is to harden and then degrade, extremely slowly. All the plastic produced over the past 60 years amounts to 8 billion tonnes. The cement industry pumps out more than that every two years. But though the problem is bigger than plastic, it is generally seen as less severe. Concrete is not derived from fossil fuels. It is not being found in the stomachs of whales and seagulls. Doctors aren't discovering traces of it in our blood. Nor do we see it tangled in oak trees or contributing to subterranean fatbergs. We know where we are with concrete. Or, to be more precise, we know where it is going. Nowhere. Which is exactly why we have come to rely on it. This solidity, of course, is what humankind yearns for. Concrete is beloved for its weight and endurance. That is why it serves as the foundation of modern life, holding time, nature, the elements and entropy at bay. When combined with steel, it is the material that ensures our dams don't burst, our tower blocks don't fall, our roads don't buckle and our electricity grid remains connected. Solidity is a particularly attractive quality at a time of disorientating change. But, like any good thing in excess, it can create more problems than it solves. At times an unyielding ally, at times a false friend, concrete can resist nature for decades and then suddenly amplify its impact. 
Take the floods in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and Houston after Harvey, which were more severe because urban and suburban streets could not soak up the rain like a floodplain, and storm drains proved woefully inadequate for the new extremes of a disrupted climate. It also magnifies the extreme weather it shelters us from. Taking in all stages of production, concrete is said to be responsible for 4 to 8% of the world's CO2. Among materials, only coal, oil and gas are a greater source of greenhouse gases. Half of concrete CO2 emissions are created during the manufacture of clinker, the most energy-intensive part of the cement-making process. But other environmental impacts are far less well understood. Concrete is a thirsty behemoth, sucking up almost a tenth of the world's industrial water use. This often strains supplies for drinking and irrigation because 75% of this consumption is in drought and water-stressed regions. In cities, concrete also adds to the heat island effect by absorbing the warmth of the sun and trapping gases from car exhausts and air conditioner units, though it is, at least, better than darker asphalt. It also worsens the problem of silicosis and other respiratory diseases, The dust from wind-blown stocks and mixers contributes as much as 10% of the coarse particulate matter that chokes Delhi, where researchers found in 2015 that the air pollution index at all of the 19 biggest construction sites exceeded safe levels by at least three times. Limestone quarries and cement factories are also often pollution sources, along with the trucks that ferry materials between them and building sites. At this scale, even the acquisition of sand can be catastrophic, destroying so many of the world's beaches and river courses that this form of mining is now increasingly run by organised crime gangs and associated with murderous violence. This touches on the most severe but least understood impact of concrete, which is that it destroys natural infrastructure without replacing the ecological functions that humanity depends on for fertilisation, pollination, flood control, oxygen production and water purification. Concrete can take our civilization upwards, up to 163 storeys high in the case of the Burj Khalifa skyscraper in Dubai, creating living space out of the air but it also pushes the human footprint outwards, sprawling across fertile topsoil and choking habitats. The biodiversity crisis, which many scientists believe to be as much of a threat as climate chaos, is driven primarily by the conversion of wilderness to agriculture, industrial estates and residential blocks. For hundreds of years, humanity has been willing to accept this environmental downside in return for the undoubted benefits of concrete but the balance may now be tilting in the other direction. The Pantheon and Colosseum in Rome are testament to the durability of concrete, which is a composite of sand, aggregate, usually gravel or stones, and water mixed with a lime-based kiln-baked binder. The modern industrialised form of the binder... Portland cement, was patented as a form of artificial stone in 1824 by Joseph Aspdin in Leeds. This was later combined with steel rods or mesh to create reinforced concrete, the basis for Art Deco skyscrapers such as the Empire State Building. 
Rivers of it were poured after the Second World War, when concrete offered an inexpensive and simple way to rebuild cities devastated by bombing. This was the period of brutalist architects such as Le Corbusier, followed by the futuristic free-flowing curves of Oscar Niemeyer and the elegant lines of Tadeo Ando. Not to mention an ever-growing legion of dams, bridges, ports, city halls, university campuses, shopping centres and uniformly grim car parks. In 1950, cement production was equal to that of steel. In the years since, it has increased 25-fold, more than three times as fast as its metallic construction partner. Debate about the aesthetics has tended to polarise between traditionalists like Prince Charles, who condemned Owen Luder's brutalist tricorn centre as a mildewed lump of elephant droppings, and modernists who saw concrete as a means of making style, size and strength affordable for the masses. The politics of concrete are less divisive but more corrosive. The main problem here is inertia. Once this material binds politicians, bureaucrats and construction companies, the resulting nexus is almost impossible to budge. Party leaders need the donations and kickbacks from building firms to get elected. State planners need more projects to maintain economic growth and construction bosses need more contracts to keep money rolling in, staff employed and political influence high. Hence, the self-perpetuating political enthusiasm for the environmentally and socially dubious infrastructure projects and cement fests like the Olympics, the World Cup and international exhibitions. The classic example is Japan, which embraced concrete in the second half of the 20th century with such enthusiasm that the country's governance structure was often described as the Dokan Koka, construction state. At first, it was a cheap material to rebuild cities ravaged by firebombs and nuclear warheads in the Second World War. Then it provided the foundations for a new model of super-rapid economic development. New railway tracks for Shinkansen bullet trains, new bridges and tunnels for elevated expressways, new runways for airports, new stadiums for the 1964 Olympics and the Osako Expo, and new city halls, schools and sports facilities. This kept the economy racing along at near double-digit growth rates until the late 1980s, ensuring employment remained high and giving the ruling Liberal Democratic Party a stranglehold on power. The political heavyweights of the era, men such as Kakue Tanaka, Yasuhiro Nakasone and Noburo Takashita, were judged by their ability to bring hefty projects to their hometowns. Huge kickbacks were the norm. Yakuza gangsters who served as go-betweens and enforcers also got their cut. Bid rigging and near monopolies by the big six building firms, Shimizu, Taisei, Kojima, Takenaka, Obayashi, Kumagai, ensured contracts were lucrative enough to provide hefty kickbacks to the politicians. The Dokun Koka was a racket on a national scale. But there is only so much concrete you can usefully lay without ruining the environment. The ever-diminishing returns were made apparent in the 1990s when even the most creative politicians struggled to justify the government's stimulus spending packages. This was a period of extraordinarily expensive bridges to sparsely inhabited regions, multi-lane roads between tiny rural communities, 
cementing over the few remaining natural riverbanks and pouring ever greater volumes of concrete into the sea walls that were supposed to protect 40% of the Japanese coastline. In his book Dogs and Demons, the author and longtime Japanese resident Alex Kerr laments the cementing over of riverbanks and hillsides in the name of flood and mudslide prevention. Runaway government-subsidised construction projects, he told an interviewer, have wreaked untold damage on mountains, rivers, streams, lakes, wetlands, everywhere. And it goes on at a heightened pace. This is the reality of modern Japan, and the numbers are staggering. He said the amount of concrete laid per square metre in Japan is 30 times the amount in America, and that the volume is almost exactly the same. So we're talking about a country the size of California laying the same amount of concrete as the entire US. Multiply America's strip malls and urban sprawl by 30 to get a sense of what's going on in Japan. Traditionalists and environmentalists were horrified and ignored. The cementation of Japan ran contrary to classic aesthetic ideals of harmony with nature and an appreciation of mujo, impermanence, but was understandable given the ever-present fear of earthquakes and tsunamis in one of the world's most seismically active nations. Everyone knew the grey-banked rivers and shorelines were ugly, but nobody cared as long as they could keep their homes from being flooded which made the devastating 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami all the more shocking. At coastal towns such as Ishinomaki, Kamaishi and Kitakami, huge seawalls that had been built over decades were swamped in minutes. Almost 16,000 people died, a million buildings were destroyed or damaged, town streets were blocked with beached ships and port waters were filled with floating cars. It was a still more alarming story at Fukushima, where the ocean surge engulfed the outer defensives of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant and caused a level 7 meltdown. Briefly, it seemed this might become a King Canute moment for Japan, when the folly of human hubris was exposed by the power of nature. But the concrete lobby was just too strong. The Liberal Democratic Party returned to power a year later with a promise to spend 200 trillion yen, 1.4 trillion pounds, on public works over the next decade, equivalent to about 40% of Japan's economic output. Construction firms were once again ordered to hold back the sea, this time with even taller, thicker barriers. Their value is contested. Engineers claim these 12-metre-high walls of concrete will stop, or at least slow, future tsunamis, but locals have heard such promises before. The area these defences protect is also of lower human worth now the land has been largely depopulated and filled with paddy fields and fish farms. Environmentalists say mangrove forests could provide a far cheaper buffer, Tellingly, even many tsunami-scared locals hate the concrete between them and the ocean. It feels like we're in jail, even though we haven't done anything bad, an oyster fisherman at Sushi Fujita told Reuters. We can no longer see the sea, said the Tokyo-born photographer Tadashi Ono, who took some of the most powerful images of these massive new structures. He described them as an abandonment of Japanese history and culture. Our richness as a civilization is because of our contact with the ocean, he said. 
Japan has always lived with the sea and we were protected by the sea. And now the Japanese government has decided to shut out the sea. Thank you for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Hello, Faker Others here. This summer, the UK will play host to the Women's Euro Championship. I would say it's going to be a seminal moment, but I have promised my producers that that kind of chat is not going to be allowed on our brand new podcast, The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. Throughout July, myself, Susie Rack and a bunch of women's football experts will be on hand three times a week to provide instant reaction and analysis from the tournament. We'll be launching with a preview episode on Monday the 4th of July, so make sure to search, subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you than make That's a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. There was an inevitability about this. Across the world, concrete has become synonymous with development. In theory, the laudable goal of human progress is measured by a series of economic and social indicators such as life expectancy, infant mortality and education levels. But to political leaders, by far the most important metric is gross domestic product, a measure of economic activity that, more often than not, 
is treated as a calculation of economic size. GDP is how governments assess their weight in the world, and nothing bulks up a country like concrete. This is true of all countries at some stage. During their early stages of development, heavyweight construction projects are beneficial, like a boxer putting on muscle. But for more already mature economies, it is harmful, like an aged athlete pumping ever stronger steroids to ever less effect. During the 1997-98 Asian financial crisis, Keynesian economic advisers told the Japanese government the best way to stimulate GDP growth was to dig a hole in the ground and fill it, preferably with cement. The bigger the hole, the better. This meant profits and jobs. Of course, it's much easier to mobilise a nation to do something that improves people's lives, but either way, concrete is likely to be part of the arrangement. This was the thinking behind Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s, which is celebrated in the US as a recession-busting national project, but might also be described as the biggest ever concrete-pouring exercise up until that point. The Hoover Dam alone required 3.3 million cubic metres, then a world record. Construction firms claimed it would outlast human civilization. But that was lightweight compared to what is now happening in China, the concrete superpower of the 21st century and the greatest illustration of how the material transforms a culture, a civilization intertwined with nature, into an economy, a production unit obsessed by GDP statistics. Beijing's extraordinarily rapid rise from developing nation to superpower in waiting has required mountains of cement, beaches of sand and lakes of water. The speed at which these materials are being mixed is perhaps the most astonishing statistic of the modern age. Since 2003, China has poured more cement every three years than the US managed in the entire 20th century. Today, China uses almost half the world's concrete. The property sector, roads, bridges, railways, urban development and other cement and steel projects accounted for a third of its economy's expansion in 2017. Every major city has a floor-size scale model of urban development plans that has to be constantly updated as small white plastic models are turned into mega malls, housing complexes and concrete towers. But like the US, Japan, South Korea and every other country that developed before it, China is reaching the point where simply pouring concrete does more harm than good. Ghost malls. Half-empty towns and white elephant stadiums are a growing sign of wasteful spending. Take the huge new airport in Luliang, which opened with barely five flights a day. Or the Olympic Bird's Nest Stadium, so underused that it is now more a monument than a venue. Although the adage, build and the people will come, has often proved correct in the past, the Chinese government is worried. After the National Bureau of Statistics found 450 square kilometres of unsold residential floor space, the country's president, Xi Jinping, called for the annihilation of excess developments. Empty, crumbling structures are not just an eyesore, but a drain on the economy and a waste of productive land. Ever greater construction requires ever more cement and steel factories, discharging ever more pollution and carbon dioxide. As the Chinese landscape architect Yu Kongjiang has pointed out, it also suffocates the ecosystems. 
Fertile soil, self-cleansing streams, storm-resisting mangrove swamps, flood-preventing forests on which human beings ultimately depend. It is a threat to what he calls eco-security. Yu has led the charge against concrete, ripping it up whenever possible to restore riverbanks and natural vegetation. In his influential book, The Art of Survival, he warns that China has moved dangerously far from Taoist ideals of harmony with nature. The urbanisation process we follow today is a path to death, he has said. Yu has been consulted by government officials who are increasingly aware of the brittleness of the current Chinese model of growth, but their scope for movement is limited. The initial momentum of a concrete economy is always followed by inertia in concrete politics. The President has promised a shift of economic focus away from belching heavy industries and towards high-tech production in order to create a beautiful country and an ecological civilization. And the government is now trying to wind down from the biggest construction boom in human history. But she cannot let the construction sector simply fade away because it employs more than 55 million workers, almost the entire population of the UK. Instead, China is doing what countless other nations have done, exporting its environmental stress and excess capacity overseas. Beijing's much-vaunted Belt and Road Initiative, an overseas infrastructure investment project many times greater than the Marshall Plan, promises a splurge of roads in Kazakhstan, at least 15 dams in Africa, railways in Brazil and ports in Pakistan, Greece and Sri Lanka. To supply these and other projects, China National Building Material, the country's biggest cement producer, has announced plans to construct 100 cement factories across 50 nations. This will almost certainly mean more criminal activity. As well as being the primary vehicle for supercharged national building, the construction industry is also the widest channel for bribes. In many countries, the correlation is so strong, people see it as an index. The more concrete, the more corruption. According to the watchdog group Transparency International, construction is the world's dirtiest business, far more prone to graft than mining, real estate, energy or the arms market. No country is immune, but in recent years, Brazil has revealed most clearly the jaw-dropping scale of bribery in the industry. As elsewhere, the craze for concrete in South America's biggest nation started benignly enough as a means of social development, then morphed into an economic necessity, and finally metastasized into a pool for political expediency and individual greed. The progress between these stages was impressively rapid. The first huge national project in the late 1950s was the construction of a new capital, Brasilia, on an almost uninhabited plateau in the interior. A million cubic metres of concrete were poured on the highland site in just 41 months to encase the soil and erect new edifices for ministries and homes. This was followed by a new highway through the Amazon rainforest, the Trans-Amazonia, and then from 1970, South America's biggest hydroelectric power plant, the Itaipu on the Parana River border with Paraguay, which is almost four times bulkier than the Hoover Dam. The Brazilian operator boasts the 12.3 million cubic metres of concrete would be enough to fill 210 Maracana stadiums. This was a world record, 
until China's Three Gorges Dam choked the Yangtze with 27.2 million cubic metres. With the military in power, the press censored and no independent judiciary, there was no way of knowing how much of the budget was siphoned off by the generals and contractors. But the problem of corruption has become all too apparent since 1985 in the post-dictatorship era, with virtually no party or politician left untainted. For many years, the most notorious of them was Paolo Maluf, the governor of Sao Paulo, who had run the city during the construction of the giant elevated expressway known as Minho Cao, which means Big Worm. As well as taking credit for this project, which opened in 1969, he also allegedly skimmed $1 billion from public works in just four years, part of which has been traced to secret accounts in the British Virgin Islands. Although wanted by Interpol, Malouf evaded justice for decades and was elected to a number of senior public offices. This was thanks to a high degree of public cynicism encapsulated by the phrase most commonly used about him, he steals but he gets things done, which could describe much of the global concrete industry. But his reputation as the most corrupt man in Brazil has been overshadowed in the past five years by Operation Car Wash. Operation Car Wash. An investigation into a vast network of bid rigging and money laundering. The biggest case of political corruption in the country's history. Giant construction firms, notably Odebrecht, Andrade Gutierrez and Camargo Correa, were at the heart of this sprawling scheme, which saw politicians, bureaucrats and middlemen receive at least $2 billion worth of kickbacks in return for hugely inflated contracts for oil refineries, the Belo Mont Dam, the 2014 World Cup, the 2016 Olympics and dozens of other infrastructure projects throughout the region. Outrage across Latin America at one of the world's greatest corruption scandals. Prosecutors said Odebrecht alone had paid bribes to 415 politicians and 26 political parties. As a result of these revelations, one government fell, a former president of Brazil and the vice president of Ecuador are in prison, the president of Peru was forced to resign and dozens of other politicians and executives were put behind bars. The corruption scandal also reached Europe and Africa. The US Department of Justice called it the largest foreign bribery case in history. It was so huge that when Malouf was finally arrested in 2017, nobody batted an eyelid. Such corruption is not just a theft of tax revenue, it is a motivation for environmental crime. Billions of tonnes of CO2 pumped into the atmosphere for projects of dubious social value and often pushed through, as in the case of Belo Monte, against the opposition of affected local residents and with deep concerns among environmental licensing authorities. Although the dangers are increasingly apparent, this pattern continues to repeat itself. India and Indonesia are just entering their high concrete phase of development. Over the next 40 years, the newly built floor area in the world is expected to double. Some of that will bring health benefits. The environmental scientist Viklav Smil estimates the replacement of mud floors with concrete in the world's poorest homes could cut parasitic diseases by nearly 80%. But each wheelbarrow of concrete also tips the world closer to ecological collapse. Chatham House predicts urbanisation, population growth 
and economic development will push global cement production from 4 to 5 billion tonnes a year. If developing countries expand their infrastructure to current average global levels, the construction sector will emit 470 gigatons of carbon dioxide by 2050, according to the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate. This violates the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, under which every government in the world agreed that annual carbon emissions from the cement industry should fall by at least 16% by 2030 if the world is to reach the target of staying within 1.5 to 2 degrees of warming. It also puts a crushing weight on the ecosystems that are essential for human well-being. The dangers are recognised. A report last year by Chatham House calls for a rethink in the way cement is produced. To reduce emissions, it urges greater use of renewables in production, improved energy efficiency, more substitutes for clinker and, most important, the widespread adoption of carbon capture and storage technology. Though this is expensive and has not yet been deployed in the industry on a commercial scale. Architects believe the answer is to make buildings leaner, and when possible to use other materials such as cross-laminated timber. It is time to move out of the concrete age and stop thinking primarily about how a building looks, said Anthony Thistledon. Concrete is beautiful and versatile, but unfortunately it ticks all the boxes in terms of environmental degradation, he told the Architects' Journal. We have a responsibility to think about all the materials we're using and their wider impact. But many engineers argue that there is no viable alternative. Steel, asphalt and plasterboard are more energy intensive than concrete. The world's forests are already being depleted at an alarming rate, even without a surge in extra demand for timber. Phil Purnell, a professor of materials and structures at Leeds University, said the world was unlikely to reach a peak concrete moment. The raw materials are virtually limitless and it will be in demand for as long as we build roads, bridges and anything else that needs a foundation, he said. By almost any measure, it is the least energy-hungry of all materials. Instead, he calls for existing structures to be better maintained and conserved and when that is not possible, to enhance recycling. Currently, most concrete goes to landfill sites or is crushed and reused as aggregate. This could be done more efficiently, Purnell said, if slabs were embedded with identification tags that would allow the material to be matched with demand. His colleagues at Leeds University are also exploring alternatives to Portland cement. Different mixes can reduce the carbon footprint of a binder by up to two-thirds, they say. Arguably, more important still, is a change of mindset away from a developmental model that replaces living landscapes with built environments and nature-based cultures with data-driven economies. That requires tackling power structures that have been built on concrete and recognising that fertility is a more reliable base for growth than solidity. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Hold up. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.